My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, my guest is a best-selling author, Emmy-nominated investigative reporter, and an award-winning journalist. This guest doesn't do puff pieces. She spent two decades covering terrorism, murder, mobsters, and corruption for television, newspapers, and radio. Included in her career, she's the author of five true crime books. She was the police bureau chief for the New York Daily News for nearly a decade and has covered high-profile crime cases nationally and internationally. Included in those are being at ground zero for the story of 9-11 and being in Boston within striking range of the Boston Marathon bombing. She has written for shows such as City on the Hill and she has been a commentator on breaking news for national programs on ABC World News, CNN, MSNBC, and the Fox News Network. She's here to talk about the books that she has penned concerning the terrorist acts in Boston and her future project about the infamous gang MS-13. I'm happy to introduce you to Michelle McPhee. What's going on? I'm so happy to be here. And um, first of all, I have to point out, I love the baseball hat. Okay. I appreciate it. I've already been listening to the podcast and you do a great job. There's something about talking to Leos that get gets me excited because at least they understand what the hell you're saying and a story as complicated as the Boston Marathon bombing. Yeah, uh, and this one, in in reading this book, Mayhem was the one you sent me. You also sent me Maximum Harm, but we said we would focus on Mayhem. And reading it, there is a lot of stuff that kind of layers on top of each other and it makes you wonder how some things were done, why some things might have been done in certain ways. So let's start off the bat by why did you pick this one to become so focused? Because like we said, you were at 9-11, you've been at international events, but you really, really focused hard in on this one. Well, you know, I, I was at the ground zero when the towers came down and I lost a lot of friends that day. I worked out of one police plaza, so I worked directly with the NYPD. Uh, I knew personally a lot of the police officers, the, among the 23 that perished that day, I knew several. Uh, there were 37 Port Authority police officers, 343 firefighters, and in that number are a lot of my friends. So it was a very difficult time, and it was a story that I immersed myself in for a very long time. And to this day, I feel like we are not getting the whole story in our own government. And I'm not talking about parties here. I'm talking about, look, it went to Bush, to Obama to Trump and now to Biden, they're not cooperating with the families who are trying to get answers about the Saudis' involvement and what went down that day. To me, that's unacceptable. And so when the bombs went off, you know, in my hometown city, and one of the reasons I was back in Boston in the first place is because I just had become so worn down with writing about 9-11 and not getting answers. I mean, initially, you know, at the New York Daily News, I broke a story about the diseases 
that cops and firefighters were being stricken with, these inexplicable illnesses that never existed before 9-11. And, you know, you had the then Mayor Bloomberg and you had Christy Todd Whitman, who was in the Bush administration. Both of them came out and called me liar, a liar. And you know today that that's absolutely a fact that we have lost dozens of cops and firefighters. We passed the Zadroga Act for a reason because people are still falling victim to the attacks on 9-11. So the reason I became so intensely focused on the Boston Marathon bombing is because the same mistakes were made and I felt like we weren't getting the truthful narrative. So we had, again, we have this massive terror attack in my hometown and we weren't getting the real story from the feds. Okay, so here's my question, though. So you you say that you don't get the right answers about 9-11. You say that you, no matter who you go through, what administration you go through, you're not getting the right answers. What made you think that this was going to be any different? I mean, it, it almost seems like a, a fool's quest. I mean, is that a good way to put it? Well, that's a great way to And believe me, there have been days that I feel like an absolute moron. Like, why am I doing this? It's certainly not for the money. Uh, you know, I'm putting my head in the chopping block constantly. But look, when you lose friends, there's, there's a motivation. So that was my motivation for 9-11. And when you see, I just find it despicable that our own government is not cooperating with the 9-11 victims' families. I'm sure you've seen the lawsuit that's ongoing to this day. Most recently, the families were able to learn in discovery that there was an FBI informant living with one of the hijackers at the time of the 9-11 attacks. Where is that story? It's not even being covered or talked about. I think that's a pretty egregious mistake. If you had an FBI informant living with one of the hijackers and we didn't stop that attack, there's a problem. And, and that's the issue. I'm not saying we don't need informants. It's a necessary evil. But when their mistakes are made, people have to be accountable. I'm fairly certain that if you made mistakes in your job, and there would be accountability. You might even go to jail. But the same sort of focus and scrutiny is not often leveled at counterterrorism agencies. And I think that needs to change. And what really provoked me to get involved in this particular case was the murder of Sean Collier. Because, look, no one could have, I'm not arguing in any way, anyone could have prevented what happened on Patriot's Day 10 years ago in 2013 in Boston. What I am saying is that if we had gotten honest information from entities in the federal counterterrorism divisions, then Sean Collier very well could be alive today. And I'm not the only person who feels that way. There are a lot of cops who have been behind me on this reporting and, and helping propel me into different directions because they're pissed off too. So I think at this point, it's just become a fool's errand and a personal mission to at least, look, the Congress has the power. When, when you know, I'm sure you read in the book that after the marathon bombings, Congress sent out subpoenas to the FBI and they refused to show up. Let's start with that. Is that acceptable to you? Is that acceptable to anyone in the country that the FBI can just blow off a congressional subpoena? What would happen if you blew off a subpoena to court in one of your cases? Well, and, and I think that there's so many comparisons between 9-11 and the Boston attack. And I think the big one and kind of the elephant in the room is the exchange of intel was not done. 
Now you had Russian intel giving information, but it it was in bits and pieces. You had CIA not talking to FBI, FBI not talking to CIA, Boston trying to come in and figure out in their own city what is the information we need, including times where they're coming across people that are running surveillance and know that they're running surveillance and trying to figure out just what's in the area and why they don't need to be there. Do you think that the exchange of information was the big crux of this whole investigation? I think it's a part of it, but I think when you dive a little bit deeper, there was more to it. Look, Tamerlan was the perfect asset. You would have flipped him. You know, he was a good looking kid that can move in a lot of circles. He spoke several languages. Uh, he was a neighbor to a mosque that had alarming terror ties. It was started by a convicted terrorist who was very tight with um, Qaddafi. Afia Siddiqui, Lady Al-Qaeda moved through that mosque. You had Tarek Mahana, a convicted terrorist, moved through that mosque. So this mosque was absolutely a focal point. And we all know what happened after 9-11, which is why these stories are so intertwined. After 9-11, the focus really became, let's flip informants in the community. We know that the FBI had a very strong focus on mosque crawling, which means let's embed people in some of these mosques where you're hearing, not all of them obviously are preaching radical ideas, but there are a few that are. And if you know there are, let's put some people inside and try to stop an attack before it happens. And Tamlin was a perfect guy to do that. He lived right in the neighborhood. And I think the turning point for him was when the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, HSI, Drug Squad, was looking at a gang of Eritrean dealers who were funding terrorism overseas, Al-Shabaab, some of the kidnappings of those little girls. Eritrea, you might recall, in 2011 was such a hotbed of terrorism, the UN sanctioned the entire country for supporting it. So they had this really big case going on where they were trying to take down these drug dealers with ties to that terror organization, and they had inserted an informant. And the informant, I believe, was Tamalin Zanayev, the older Marathon bombing brother, because the target of this case, which was called Operation Run This Town, was a guy he had gone to high school with. He was friends with him. His name was Hamadi Hassan. And if you look at a story I wrote for ABC News, Tale of the Gun, the murder weapon that was used to assassinate Sean Collier, the MIT police officer in cold blood, and the same gun that was used in that wild bombing bullet battle in Watertown was a gun traced back to the Eritrean drug crew that I believe Tamerlan was working in 2011. Okay, so speaking of him, there's so many things that pop up about him because I think of the two brothers, he's definitely the most focused on the mission. I think the the other brother came along. He really brought him in. But he, as you say in the book, self-radicalized. He became such a problem that he was causing problems in mosques and uh, was becoming very outspoken, even in these mosques that you're talking about where they are speaking radical ideas. He's even more radical than them. He's been to Russia to train. He's been in all of these different things. So I'm wondering, with that, I, I, I'm wondering why those mosques aren't using him uh, even more, why he's not becoming a, uh, 
a speaking box for them. Do you understand what I'm I'm trying to get at? He's he's radicalized and they have a very radical person that they could have putting these ideas out, but they almost seem to kind of hold him back in the book. I think the mosque was horrified by him, to be honest. You know, look, certainly it had ties to very notorious terrorists. Lady Al-Qaeda probably is the most famous because you, you might remember uh, before they... ISIS killed James Foley, the journalist from New Hampshire. They tried to negotiate a trade for Athia Siddiqui because she had been married into the bin Laden family. And, you know, she she was a horrifying person. But I think the, the mosque was mostly moderate. So like, you had a few people like Lee Al-Qaeda, but it was a fairly moderate mosque. And it had kind of was trying to move away from its past with, you know, these much more dangerous people. Tamlin, I think, was going in there... And, you know, Ray Kelly, the NYPD commissioner, you know, he started something after 9-11 called the Terrorist Interdiction Squad. And and our good friend, Chris Strom, was a big part of that. And one of the strategies that they used to try to make sure they got their own intel and didn't have to rely on other agencies for it is to do sort of implement exactly what the feds were doing, embedding cops overseas. Um, they, they had the intelligence division flipped 13 muslim recruits who had taken the civil service test they took them off radar and made them their own informants and one of the tactics that the nypd's informants used was to create a scene at a mosque say crazy things like you know muhammad ali or uh oh what's his name martin luther king is a kafir you know and then wait and see who comes to you so i think tamalin's role was more in trying to gin up response and he got it because a number of the co-defendants who were arrested in connection with helping the Boston Marathon bombers are lying to the FBI, were people that he met at that mosque, including Ibrahim Todashev, who you might recall was shot dead in May of 2015, I'm sorry, May of 2013, not long after the Boston Marathon. Ibrahim Todashev and Tamalin Zanayev are now the prime suspects in a still unsolved murder of three young men in Waltham on 9-11-11. And I won't forget that day because a source called me and said, McPhee, it looks like an Al-Qaeda training video in here. I got three young men. They're all mixed martial arts fighters. The heads were nearly decapitated. Two of the Jewish victims were sexually mutilated. And there were drugs and money left behind at the scene. Well, Todashev fled that very night. He moved down to Florida. And when it was revealed that Tamerlan could have been connected to that unsolved murder, um, an FBI agent and, and a couple of good cops went down to talk to him. There was a commotion, a violent melee breaks out, and Todashev ends up dead. And I bring that up because the two of them met each other at that mosque. Well, and, and we're definitely going to talk about that because I think that's a big thing of this case and a big thing in the book. But I want to go back a little further right now, if we can. And I want to talk about the parents, uh, especially the mother of these two. Um, you, you make a big focus on her. And I think it's a very good point that she was almost, in my opinion, self-radicalized. Would you agree with that statement? 100%. I mean, look, what's really murky for me still to this day is what kind of connections the family has back in Russia. You know, I know what kind of connections helped them get into the country, but I don't know what kind of connections they had going on. But we do know that Zubidat, the mom, the crazy mom, everyone's seen her act like a nut on television, her cousin was the leader of a jihadi support group, if you will. Like they didn't necessarily 
explode things, but they funded the explosions, that kind of a group. And it was called the Union of the Just. And when Tamerlan went on that strange trip to Russia, and I think it's important to point out, the murder happens on 9-11. By that time, the FBI had already gotten a warning from the Russians. Okay, so the FSB alerts the FBI in March of 2011 that this guy is talking to some dangerous characters that are training in the forest to commit acts of jihad. The FBI interviews him, but somehow they don't recognize him when, you know, less than a year and a half later, he blows up the marathon. They say they open a case and then close the case. They didn't find anything wrong with them. Then the FSB sends a second letter to the CIA this time. And this letter says, we have learned that you have this guy in Cambridge who's connected to some terrorists here in Dagestan. His mother is related to one of them. We think he's coming to Russia to join the jihad. Heads up. Well, the CIA takes this information and puts Tamerlan on texts and tides, two terror watch lists. Now, that should have prevented a guy with no American passport from getting out of the country, for one. It definitely should have prevented him from getting back in more than six months later. He is a green card holder, which means he's prohibited from staying out of the country for longer than six months. So there's a lot of open questions in that correspondence, which, by the way, the FBI refuses to this day to share with the Office of Inspector General Michael Horowitz or with Congress, which I think is the bigger problem. How do they get away with not sharing evidence in a case that left two young women, a little boy, and a cop dead? A cop later died of his injuries sustained in Watertown, and Dick Donahue almost died. You had another cop shot in the back that night that's been kept somewhat quiet. So now you have Two shot, three shot cops, a cop who died later of a concussion sustained in the Watertown attacks, a dead little boy and two young women. And the FBI doesn't have to produce the evidence that is critical to this case. I think that's unacceptable. Well, I, I want to kind of focus in on a part of what you said there. Whenever he leaves, that 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 those two terror watch lists definitely should have stopped him from leaving. But definitely, if anything, should have stopped him from coming back into the country. Um, and, and that was a really interesting thing to me because you pointed out on on multiple occasions, they said that the the birth dates were messed up. They weren't sure of all of the information. And that went for, I think, both brothers, actually, for different things. But can you go into a little more depth and explain that? Because I thought that was really fascinating in the story, that this guy is flying back and forth between Russia and uh, the United States, all in the meantime that these letters are coming in from Russian intelligence saying, this guy's a bad guy, watch him, yet he's going back and forth in countries probably easier than you and I could get on a plane and do it. Well, I hate to bring it up again, but one of the major recommendations in the 9-11 Commission Report, which I've actually read, unlike most members of Congress, is to stop the practice of allowing people who get political asylum to travel back to their homelands that they got political asylum from because they claim they would be killed if they ever went home. These are people who allege that they are being persecuted or their lives are in danger. Then they get political asylum, like the Zanayevs did in 2002, and then, oh, I don't know, now we're vacationing in Russia. That makes absolutely no sense. And it was a major recommendation that the 9-11 Commission made that obviously was never implemented because Tiermelin traveled to Russia constantly. So in this particular case, though, he's on two terror watch lists. 
and he's traveling on a green card. Now, if you and I tried to go to Cancun on vacation and get back on a green card, we would be stopped automatically for a secondary review at the very least. This guy comes back. He's dressed in completely different, you know, Muslim garb. He's got a beard and he just came back from a terrorist hotbed. By the way, days earlier, that buddy that he was talking to, the one that was responsible for the FSB warning in the first place, the Canadian boxer named William Plotnikov, that guy ended up dead in a Russian counterterrorism raid that leveled this compound where they were all training. So the dudes that Tamalin was corresponding with end up dead in July of 2012. Tamalin is on the next plane out of Moscow. And in the words of Congressman Bill Keating from Massachusetts, he tied high tails at the hell out of there after his friends got killed. And it also raises the other question. Here's a guy whose death certificate says never worked. Who is paying for all of this? Who, how is he driving a Mercedes? I think it's, it's just a nut. So the layer upon layer upon layer of questions, it makes more and more of a compelling argument that there was much more to the relationship between federal authorities and Tamlins and I. So let's go back to the mom then, because that's an interesting point. They came here seeking asylum and they, and they did it a, a strange way. Usually they don't go to the younger family members. Usually they go to the older brothers, older sisters or whatever to take care. Now with her, she went to the younger brother who he was an attorney and, and he spits hatred about her to this day. He took care of her, but he said that she was evil. And I, I don't remember the exact quote, but from evil comes evil. Uh, speaking about the two boys and her. Do you think that she had a big part? Because it, it's so weird to think as crazy as she was when she lived there and the hair and the clothes and everything that when they came here that she radicalized and would radicalize her son because her husband wouldn't be leading that charge because he, he never did over in Russia. Like he, he, he was a non-factor. So, I mean, it's interesting when you look at the family because, look, we said they got asylum immediately upon arrival in 2002. But where they got it from, where they got their tourist visas initially was Ankara, Turkey. And it's definitely worth pointing out that the station chief for the CIA in Ankara, Turkey at the time was a guy named Graham Fuller. That uncle that you were talking about who said, from evil comes evil. His name is Ruslan Sarni, and he lived with Graham Fuller in Maryland because he was married to Graham Fuller's daughter, Samantha. So this is a pretty strong CIA connection. When you're married to the daughter of the CIA station chief in the place where your loser brother and the rest of his family got political asylum. And you have to think about this too. We, we both know returning veterans who can't get anything. And these guys arrive in the country and in five minutes are in a Section 8 federally subsidized taxpayer funded apartment that just happened to be owned by Graham Fuller's Russian studies professor who was a KGB defector. Well, and, and let's not only say that when they first got here, they're staying at a house of a doctor is where yeah. they first go. So they, they, they never seem to slow down once they hit the ground here. 
it, it seems to just fall in place. So I guess going back to my question, do you think that the mom had anything to do with this radicalization? Who do you think sparked this fuel? Because it was like instantly, once it got into uh, Tamron, it, it took off. It really did because, you know, everyone kind of describes the younger brother, Jahar, as like the hapless, innocent victim of his older brother. But people forget that Jahar had this online identity that, you know, espoused hate constantly from 2012, right around the time that his brother got back from Russia. And these are guys who had like YouTube videos set up to Anwal Alawaki, the American, you know, terrorist. And so it looked like 2012 was about the time. And it is worth noting that crazy Zubida. Now I knew a woman, she used to do facials. They had a million welfare scams. They were on welfare their whole lives, but they had a million scams to make money on the side. And one of them for the mom was to give facials in her house. So I knew a lady that went there for facials who said that she went there for months and Zubida was like a normal American immigrant. The next time she went there in early 2012, she was covered fully, fully covered you know, um, only showing her eyes. And she, she was so startled to take it back that she left. But it, it's worth noting that Zubida got locked up for shoplifting thousands of dollars worth of clothes from an expensive department store in an upscale mall. And there's still a warrant out for her arrest to this day. But the timeline is Tamerlan leaves for Russia and starts hanging out with her family. Interestingly enough, he's wiretapping their conversations well, you can Secretly. ask about that. Later. He's Secretly. not letting anyone know that he's doing it. Yeah, so he's meeting with his mother's relatives and recording them, all the conversations. And the conversations are, of course, about Tamlin trying. And even the family, like, this is a guy who tried too hard almost. He's like, hey, I want to commit jihad. And they're like, settle down, guy. Right? You don't even know what you're talking about. Have you read the Quran? So even the family who supports jihad was telling him to settle down a little because he was so overzealous in these conversations that he was recording. So I think they even suspected there was something awry with this with this Tamerlan, the distant cousin from America, who called himself Muaz when he was in Russia. So Tamerlan goes first in January 2012. His father, Anzor, who's just like a, a loser, he, he goes a couple months later. Then the mom, not long after she gets locked up, she goes. Now remember, at this time, the mom and the dad are divorced, but they continue to live together to this day in Russia. They never came back. They didn't come back to claim their dead kid's body. They didn't come back when their other son was sentenced to death. They have not left Russia since. So I know this is a very long-winded answer to your question, but I have to wonder who Zubidat is connected with in Russia. Because Ruslan was firmly connected in the movement that armed the Mujahideen against Putin's aggression. Where does Zubidat stand in that fight? I mean, I think if you look at the evidence, she probably stands with Putin now. Okay. But I guess my question would be, have you found out what it was that made the switch in her? Because more than anyone in this entire story, more than the sons, more than anyone, she did a 180 degree turn from what she was to what she became. Do you know or have you ever found out or heard what that switch was? I, you know what? I don't know what the switch was. I really don't. But it seems like everything started to generate around the time that Tamalin was talking to the to the Mujahideen in the forests, which is terrorist parlance for training camps. So did Zubidat 
you know, make those connections? I don't know, because we don't have a full unredacted copy of the Inspector General's report, and we don't have the letters that were sent to the FBI and the CIA by the FSB. And I think that the answer they are looking for lies in those letters with the, which the FBI refuses to give us. So, so with that, with the mother and, and the father, uh, you're saying they never came back, but have they, of course they've been on TV and stuff, but have they ever attempted to even clear up any of this story? No, I know that we pay for expensive phone calls from the ADX Supermax where their youngest son is being held awaiting the death penalty. And we pay for those calls that he gets to make twice a month to Russia. But other than that, there's no indication whatsoever that they are fighting for his release or where they stand in this case. The last time anybody's seen Zubadet is when she held a press release saying that the, you know, the U.S. killed her son. Why did they have to kill him? And in that press conference, she was also fully covered. So it's a woman without an identity. And, you know, these are not powerful, politically connected people, right? Like, like Ruslan Sarni, the uncle, he works for Halliburton. He worked in the oil industry. He had connections, which is how he probably became into the orbit of Graham Fuller, the CIA station chief in the first place. These people are gypsies. They're mostly homeless, unemployed nobodies who somehow managed to convince the U.S. to give them permanent residency. And the saddest of all is that Jahar Zanayev actually became a citizen on September 11th, 2012, in the Boston Garden, which breaks my heart, the, the best building in the world, and this low-life terrorist took an oath to this country in that building and blew us up months later. Do you think that, and, and maybe you don't, do you think that this family, the entire family as a whole, and this is a big conspiracy theory, so let me put that out there, was asleep or so? I mean, I honestly don't know. You you can see that every single thing in my book and you know on my podcast, you can you can listen to an episode and all of the corresponding evidence is posted at mayhempod.com. The book is heavily annotated. There's nothing in that book that I can't prove in writing or in court records or in interviews. So I don't know. I, I do think that there is, I do think that there is a very big mystery around what their relationship to Russia is today. Because we, I, I can tell you this, when all of Tamlin's friends were killed in that raid, Doko Umarov, the Russian Osama bin Laden was still alive. And he had sort of like the Drudge Report for terrorists. And he posted a story about the guys who got killed in that raid, Tamlin's friends, and he said that the, you know, the Mujahideen were led, you know, the, the Russian aggressors were led to the Mujahideen's compound by an informant. So clearly there was an informant that the Russians were looking at. There was an informant that, you know, and look, Tamerlan's birthright should have put him in with the Chechen rebels. That should have put him in with the Mujahideen. If he was working with the Russians in any way, that would have been the worst sin he possibly could have committed. It would be like an American soldier working for the Russians right now in Ukraine. So it, it would have been the worst betrayal to his people if he was indeed helping the Russians find a Mujahideen compound in Udemesh, which is where that terrorist raid took place. So he comes back here. And I think the whole, you know, this whole story centers around his quest for citizenship. We know he was wildly motivated to become a U.S. citizen. Number one, his brother was a citizen. 
So there's a, there's a saying in the Chechen culture, it is better to be a dog than the youngest son, right? Because the older son is the patriarch, not the father, not this loser father they had, but Tamerlan was the family patriarch. He's the one that arranged them very young marriages of his two sisters. You know, he's the one that lived with Uncle Ruslan and Maryland and Graham Fuller for a while. He was supposed to be the strength of that family. And when Jahar got citizenship before he did, it was a huge humiliation for Tamlin. We know he wanted to box for the U.S. Olympics because he participated in a public essay with a BU student called Will Box for Passport. He wanted to box, and he's a good boxer. I mean, he won the heavyweight championship for the Golden Gloves twice. That's a big accomplishment. So he was a, he was a, an accomplished boxer who wanted to be a citizen so he could fight. I think what happened is he was made a promise because within weeks of his arrival from Russia, his return in January, 2012, I'm sorry, he left in June, 2012, and he returned in January, 2013. And within weeks of his return, he gets a letter, come to your oath ceremony, congratulations, you're a citizen. Well, the problem is, is that whoever was in charge of making sure that that pathway to citizenship was a smooth one for Tamerlan based on his work in Russia, screwed up. And USCIS, the bureaucrat who rubber stamps these naturalization requests was like, hell no. You have a guy with a criminal record. He's not eligible for citizenship because he slapped a girlfriend around less than five years earlier for dressing too provocatively. So he's automatically disqualified from naturalization because he's in violation of what they call the moral turpitude clause. So we did, so the USCIS person on the desk is like, uh, I can't give him citizenship. He doesn't have a job. He uh, has this arrest record. He's just not eligible. So she emailed the FBI, her contact, which is redacted on the form. I imagine it's the same guy that visited him a few times back in 2011 when the FBI got the heads up. They email that FBI agent. The FBI agent emails back, no, 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 give it to him. He's not a problem. We, we investigate him. It's not a problem. The way the story has been explained to me by multiple, multiple police contacts who have been in this world for a long time, you know, DEA and FBI SACs, people have worked internationally is the CIA can't get this guy's citizenship. The FBI has to do it. You know, they can't operate domestically. They assign it to somebody at the FBI in Boston. Hey, this guy, you know, he's one of ours. Help him out. Get him a citizenship. The FBI, because of what you referred to at the very beginning of this conversation, which is inf information sharing, glory sharing even, he was like, not my case. I'm not doing it. So simply, I think this case comes down to this simple fact. Somebody was supposed to hold Tamerlan's and Ives' hand and help him get his citizenship. And that didn't happen. And instead, he went to the building five or six times and was turned away every time. And the very last time he had a public meltdown in the USCIS building, he demanded a name change application. He changed his name to Muaz, which was the undercover name he was using when he was wiretapping his family members. Oh, and by the way, in addition to his friends getting killed, the family member he was wiretapping got locked up. So he testified about the case from prison when Jahar finally went to trial. So clearly there's, some bad blood between the family members who were getting wiretapped and then arrested when Tamerlan left and Tamerlan. So I think what happened is it just didn't happen. He was supposed to get citizenship. 
He didn't get it. That last time in late January 2013, he flipped out. He stormed out of the place. And we all know what happened on Patriots Day 2013, just months later. Okay, so let's talk about these two brothers and the walking contradictions that are their lives. Uh, and, And I think that in every way possible, they're contradictions. I think the younger brother... Uh, his was even more complicated, but Tamerlan, uh, used to sell weed or, or smoked a lot of weed. He partied a lot. He hung around all these people. He did all these things. And when he decided to change over a couple things that I want to point out, he, he married this girl that he was dating, but none of her family was at the wedding. So that was an immediate kind of shut off from that. He cuts the guys off that he's been partying with and actually starts to, kind of talk down to them for doing it. And as a matter of fact, you talk about at one point in the book, he sees an old friend, asks him if he's converted, and when he says no, he turns his back on him and just walks away, him and his wife. But all the way up until that point, he was the exact opposite of it. So can we talk about the contradiction that this guy was compared to what he became? Yeah, I mean, you're a thousand percent right. He arrived in the country and he was kind of like, what we in Boston call Euro trash. He was hanging around with all the European kids who who are rich and go to expensive colleges in Boston. He dressed kind of flashy. He, you know, he had a multitude of girlfriends. He was partying it up. And then there was a sea change, this radical behavior change right around the time that I believe he was inserted into that Operation Run This Town case involving the Eritreans. All of a sudden, Tamerlan becomes more pious. You know, he gets arrested around that time for slapping that girl. And now, can we talk about that one for a minute? Because to this day, she still never testified against him. There's never been, I guess you would say, formal charges. There was, he was arrested for it, but then it never went to court, right? It never, somehow that went away, which is interesting because it seems like a lot of things go away in the tentacles of this case. But yes, that case went away, but it still was on his record, which is why USCIS couldn't process his naturalization application. You know, and you mentioned the weird marriage. Like he was a very active member of that mosque in Cambridge down the street from his house, but he and his wife hightail it over to Roxbury, which is kind of a far neighborhood from where they are, and got married at this very small storefront mosque without any family in attendance. Um, It was, you know, we kind of vanished vanished in and out of the circle around that time and if you read the transcripts which are now under seal by the way and the operation run this town case the target of the case uh, was clearly talking to a confidential informant and the confidential informant was giving him instructions like hey dude meet me here and it was y crew gym where tamerlan was a frequent fighter it was the 7-eleven down the street from his house so i think what happened is that tamerlan got involved in some serious work you know, and I think that the more time he spent in these circles of people who believed in jihad, I mean, these guys were dealing crack specifically to fund terrorism in Eritrea, which was pretty horrible stuff, like attacking little girls, kidnappings, terrible things. So now his whole world is occupied by horrible people who want to do damage. And I think it just, look at, I'm friends with Donnie Brasco, the real Donnie Brasco, Joe Stone. And to this day, I would might argue that he's more gangster than cop. It's kind of like what my grandfather always says. You go to a barber shop long enough, you're going to get a haircut. And I think Tamerlan just started to believe 
the messages that he had been instructed to listen to and, and to report back on. Everybody in his life was now some sort of radical. And I think that his mother was going nuts. You know, these are not very well-rounded people to begin with. And I think he was just exactly what we've heard about a million times, which is an insecure guy with no real purpose in life, a terrible home, wacky parents who just went off the rails very easily because he was spending all his time listening to these messages. Okay, so with him, let's talk about the the triple murder that happened uh, where the people were almost decapitated. Uh, there was sexual mutilation that went on. Uh, and these were direct, you, you talked about guys dealing crack and, and drugs in order just to fund terrorism. But this, how you wrote it in the book, almost seemed like a rival um, or someone that they hung out with that there was a parting of ways. Uh, can we go into that a little more into detail and talk about kind of why that that case alone is so important because you pointed out a couple times in the book if this case went this way or this way would this be different would this have happened so can we talk a little more in detail about that what happened and then what happened when they got out of there so waltham massachusetts a tidy cul-de-sac you know a leafy road like very suburbia a woman runs into the street barefoot, bloody, screaming, they're all dead, they're all dead. The woman was a girlfriend of Tamerlan's very close friend, Brendan Mess. She had met Brendan through Tamerlan, and she attended the same mosque that we've been talking about all night. So this woman comes out, and she said that she discovered her boyfriend, Brendan Mess, and his two friends dead. Now... I, as I mentioned, police sources said it looks like an Al-Qaeda training video. It is the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. And we now know, which I might not even have known when Mayhem was released, but we now know that both Jahar and Tamerlan's wife, Catherine Russell, both knew that Tamerlan had committed this act of jihad. The act of jihad being killing these drug dealers because he had warned them to stop providing Jahar with weed. We know that Jahar was a prolific weed dealer on the campus of University of Massachusetts in Dartmouth, which is way out in Western Mass. This is a kid who got a full ride on us to go to college, and he spent his entire time flunking out and selling weed. We know the three of his college buddies went away in connection with this case. So, the story we now believe is Tamerlan told these guys, stop giving my brother weed. He had become more and more devout. He didn't want his brother dealing marijuana. He didn't want his brother smoking marijuana. They were like, Psh, whatever. And Tamerlan slaughtered them with the help of Ibrahim Todeshev. Now we now know that Todeshev left Boston that very night. Now we all know it's, a, it's no secret. I'm sure you've had cases like this, that ISIS and other jihadists love to use them our money to fund their terrorism, they get off on it, right? They So Ibrahim Todeshev took his EBT card, which is, and he paid his rent with his EBT card and he left that EBT card with his roommate at the time, Kairulazan Matnov. Now, why is that important? Fast forward to the Boston Marathon bombing, Kairulazan Matnov, the cabbie, shows up at the Quincy police station and says, I know the bombers. 
Now, it's worth noting that FBI claims to this day that not one person called 911 after they had that press conference with the brothers' photos. Not one. Next day, Kyrulazar Matinov says, hey, we were friends. We met at the mosque. So Kyrulazar Matinov, the co-defendant, if he was still alive, of Tamerlan in this triple murder, shows up and says that he knew the brothers. They had all posed in front of a black flag of jihad in that mosque. There's a picture of it somewhere that I never got. Um, and Kyrulazar Matinov was followed around in Quincy, Massachusetts by a drone, an FBI drone. The drone flew so low that there were constant 911 calls to the Quincy Police Department about this drone that was following this guy around. So they followed him around, and he tried to do some evasive driving and all this craziness, and he finally gets locked up. And that's when he talks about Ibrahim Todeshev leaving his house on the night of the 9-11-11 murders. I break that story for ABC News. Once I break that story for ABC News, I get a call from people that I know in the boxing community who said that Tamerlan and the dead guy in Waltham were best friends and constantly together. So now we have Tamerlan in the mix of this murder. I go back. On, at the time, I was on the air for WCVB in Boston, the ABC News affiliate. And I went back and looked at my old story, and the DA had told me that there were two assailants and that they believed there was a white Mercedes at the scene. Sure enough... Tamerlan drove a white Mercedes. The last call that was made by the victims of that triple homicide was to Jerry's Italian Kitchen, a restaurant down the street. Guess who was a delivery driver for Jerry's Italian Kitchen under the table? That's right, Tamerlan Zanaya. Okay, so Tamerlan is a driver, so he's all over this. Uh, and, and you even say now that you know that there was a possibility or that you know now for sure that he told these guys. You know for sure. He told these guys, stop giving my brother weed or I'll take care of it. Yeah, we know for sure. And we know that Jahar told his buddies, my brother committed an act of jihad. We know that his wife was Googling rewards for the wife of the Mujahideen Waltham triple murders constantly on her laptop around that same time. So obviously the people knew that he did it. And family members have since told me that they told investigators Tamerlan should be the prime suspect because Brendan and Tamerlan was so close that they once shared an apartment together. So these weren't strangers. They were friends. And the only person who didn't show up at the memorial service for these dead guys, his dead MMA buddies, was Tamerlan. So, I mean, I think you would have considered him an obvious suspect, but for some reason he was never questioned. He's not back in Russia at that time, though, right? He hasn't left yet. No, but he is in the middle of that operation run this town case. Okay. So when when all that's done and you, you brought up the brother and, and kind of the contradiction that he is, like I said, he sold weed, he was failing out of school, like everything that you could be doing opposite of what you're supposed to be doing, this brother is doing it. The older brother, Tamerlan, is trying to become more uh, strict in his religion, pass it off to his brother. With the brother, though, I'm wondering almost when the point was for him, the flip was for him, because even throughout the whole book and, and into the trial and everything, he, he to me, doesn't seem, he seems like he did it just, just to do it, to go along with it, to do it. I mean, he did unspeakable things, but then laughed about them, and, and he never seemed to take the jihad seriously does that make any sense like he wanted to do all these acts but he never took what came behind it seriously 
You know what? I think you just touched on something I haven't given that much thought to, and I think I probably should have, but you're exactly right. I think Jahar is just a little psycho. Yeah. Like he just, he's just a little psycho. Like it wasn't about the jihad for him. It was just about, he's a creep. And you know, you would have been as stunned as I was, you know, all of his teachers took the stand and started weeping about what a good boy he was and how he was the first person to hold my baby. And I was like, this little psycho held your baby in the hospital. He's just student. And it just goes to show you that he had this, um, he had this, a narcissist charisma where he could snow people. And you, you recall the Boston Globe did a story about the poor floppy haired teen. And he was on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, looking like a very sympathetic Jim Morrison and people were really upset. But I was there that day when he swaggered into court for his arraignment and in the courtroom are the family members of the dead. You know, uh, Mark Fucarelli, one of the 17 amputees hobbled in on his crutches. His body is still festooned with ball bearings to this day from the bomb. And this kid swaggered in with a smirk on his face like he was about to go into a rap concert. He blew kisses to his sisters who were dabbing at tears in the front row. And this is a guy who clearly had no remorse and was almost enjoying the attention. You know, like almost like one of these school shooters who's just a little cretin with no empathy, no compassion for people. And it wasn't about any message. It was just about the attention they would get by doing it. And I think you tapped into it. I think that's exactly what Jahar was. What I know for a fact is on that day, he went into the basement, into his cell, jumped up on the holding bench and flipped the middle finger into the cameras as a final FU to his victims. And it really was exactly who Jahar is. Despite all the media coverage that tried to portray him as an innocent follower of his intimidating older brother, this kid was celebrating the death of United States Marines on his secret Twitter page since 2012. He did not just go along for the ride. He didn't follow his brother down Boyle's street. As a matter of fact, that gun connected to Operation Run This Town came from Jahar's friend. So these Eritreans, they, there's multiple connections. Tamerlan was connected to the older ones. Jahar was connected to the younger ones. There was a, a guy named Howie who was friends with the leader of this Operation Run This Town Eritrean drug crew whose name was Icy. Icy and Howie I can never put together until now. And I'll tell you why in a second. So Jahar is friends with Howie. Howie gives his gun, this 9mm, this Ruger P95, to his buddy Steven Silva, an Eritrean. Steven Silva lends that gun that kills Sean Collier to Jahar, along with what they called food for the dog, the bullets. Now, I didn't know if Howie and Icy knew each other. We know that Icy was the one who got that gun from a legitimate buyer buys the gun and gives it to Icy. So the ATF was able to raise the serial numbers, run brass catcher, and track this gun to Icy in the Eritrean drug crew. Jahar is the one who got the gun from the Eritreans. He's the one that carried that gun to Sean Collier's murder scene. He's the one that handed it to his brother and it was fired multiple times at responding officers. So Jahar was not this innocent guy. And even that case is crazy because you would think that after all this hard work and, in, and inserting a confidential informant in that Operation Run This Town case, where do you think Icy is today? You think he's in jail, right? No. Well, no, Icy's dead. Icy and Howie 
who for some reason escaped jail time, despite having provided the weapon to the Marathon Bombers and despite this, you know, drug-connected terrorist organization, they were out and they became the first homicide victims in Providence. Well, Icy was shot dead, Howie's in critical condition, shot together in Providence, Rhode Island, January 1st of this year, 2022. Okay, so with this, though, when you talk about Jahar and going to MIT and taking this weapon, um, you never really pointed out a reason. I'm not sure if you know it. The whole point of going to MIT. Now, when I was reading it, I thought because there's there's information that there was possible bomb builders for them, bomb makers, that they didn't really have the level of skill to make these bombs. The, the residue wasn't there. There was a lot of different things. My first thought was they went to MIT to get a bomb maker or to pick up the bombs from a bomb maker, and that's why they were on MIT because there's no other reason to me that they would go there. The confusing part to me is, though, is once again, we go back to Jahar doing this just to do this, that he's not thinking of jihad or anything. They attacked this cop for no reason. There really wasn't ever a reason that would even put them close to him. Well, except for this. So 55 days after the Boston Marathon, there's a guy, this wacky anarchist named Daniel Morley, who gets locked up for beating his mother up. And... During this attack, he elderly her. mother because I want you to say what he does now after. I know, isn't that, isn't that crazy? So he beats up his elderly mother and his and her elderly companion. They live in his house. He's he's a really smart guy. He's a scientist named David Bloss. He's been with with Daniel Morley's mother for a long time. Her name is Glenda. Morley goes bananas. Fifty five days after the Boston Marathon, he attacks them both. And as he's attacking them, he yells, I've done something I'm going to have to answer to God for. And he's losing it. And his mother crawls out the window to safety. The boyfriend follows her. There's a massive standoff. Police response. They show up at this house. The mother tells the responding officer, Gary Hayward, my son was friends with Tamlins and I, the marathon bomber. Whoop! Alarms are raised. Uh, this goes on. There's a standoff long into the next morning. They have to cancel church and evacuate the whole neighborhood because this guy's making threats from inside the house. They finally bundle him into an ambulance and the terrified mother and her boyfriend say, yeah, you can search his room. What they find in the room is bananas. And I urge everyone to go to mayhempod.com, listen to that episode, but more importantly, look at the evidence photos that you've never seen before. They pulled out every component, the signatures for the EOD guys out there, all of the signatures to the marathon bombs, right down to the ball bearings, were found in that room, this kid's bedroom. More importantly, the bombs were constructed out of six quart Fagor pressure cookers, the ones that were detonated at the marathon. Those are kind of rare. They're only sold at Macy's in the United States. And one of the items that Gary Haywood finds in Morley's room is a recipe for thermite, which is a bomb accelerant that's written on the back of the six quart Fagor pressure cooker box. So it's like you rip the lid off the box and he scribbled it on the back of that. So guess where Morley worked before Sean Collier was murdered? Here's at the lab. <laughs> right. And, and 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 this is where it gets confusing though, because I wasn't sure of the timeline of 
This guy leaves because he says he doesn't want to work on animals anymore. More than likely, he got fired from MIT. But I'm wondering, what was that initial? There was never an initial connection between him and Tamerlan. He knew him. He said that stuff. But there was no initial connection of the two. Well, they had taken a so let's, look. This, this is what all I can tell you is what I know for a fact. They had taken a class together, and since then, you might recall it's. It, this is where the story gets confusing, and it, and it's hard to follow. So bear with me. You might recall there was a Seven Eleven robbery that took place a few minutes mm -hmm. before Sean Collier was murdered. That robbery, people believe, was committed to draw cops away from MIT so that they could break into Morley's old lab and get the thermite. Okay. So I got a video of that. And if all of this comes to light with this documentary I'm working on, you'll learn that there is some very advanced technology that has matched the 7-Eleven robber to, through sophisticated technology to Daniel Wally. Okay, so let's say it is Daniel Wally. He robs a 7-Eleven. If you look at the video, you can clearly see Jahar walking in the background. So that puts the two of them together. It's Well, let me not say clearly see Jahar. What I will say, it is the same gate that we've seen a hundred times of Jahar walking down the street before he detonates the bombs. And it's a man wearing the exact sweatshirt that Jahar was wearing when he got pulled off the boat the next day. So in that video, it kind of puts those two guys together. And if you pull the police report, which I did of that 7-Eleven robbery, I have never seen this in my very long life of crime reporting. Somebody took over the report. The agency that took it over is redacted at the top. But more interesting is the redaction of the, the, the uh, description of the perp. We're looking for redacted. I've never seen that in my life. You're looking for a perp. He's a wanted suspect but you redact the description of the person who just robbed the 7-Eleven. In what world have you ever seen that happen? Yeah. Never. Right. Never. So the Morley connection, and, you know, I don't have all the answers, but the belief that my sources have tried to develop with me is that they were making, they had the thermite. Morley had it in the lab where he was working. There, you, you may recall, this is the evidence, there was a 911 call made before Sean Collier was shot saying that they heard loud banging, like beating on a drum. You don't hear this, but they recovered burglary tools. Unclear if they were connected to Sean's death or not, but close to where he was shot dead. And the assumption is he heard the commotion of somebody trying to break into the lab, backed up and got assassinated. Okay. And so, at that time, and I want to go back to him in just a second, but at that time, this was the time where Daniel was missing, right? Like, he just disappeared for two days. No one in his life knew where they were. When all this is said and done, the MIT stuff, his parents come back and say they talked to him, or his mom and her boyfriend, they said they talked to him, and he said he went fishing for two days. Yep, he said he went fishing for two days, and when they said, what are you talking about? You know, some of our neighbors died. He said, ah. People die all the time. What's the big deal? And so obviously they were alarmed enough about that comment that David Bloss, the, the boyfriend, pulled aside Gary Hayward and said, 
All I know is that on the morning of the marathon, he disappeared. We were all doing yard work. I look up, he's gone. He didn't come back for two days. He said he went fishing. And when he came back, he was very cold and said that, you know, hey, people die all the time. And then, of course, you add that to the outburst where he yells, I've done something I have to answer to God for. And it certainly, I think, puts this kid in the mix of something pretty heinous. Uh, the most interesting thing about Daniel Morley connection to me is that there was a superseding indictment leveled against Jahar in July, days after Daniel Morley was locked up. And the superseding indictment, which you can see at mayhempod.com, just so you don't, you can see the difference in the two indictments. But the superseding says on the night of April 18th, the brothers went to Norfolk Street, their house, and they got, you know, the bombs and, and this and that. And first, the, my first thought is, how do they know this? Tamlin's dead. Jahar's not talking. How do they know what they got and when? But in that superseding indictment, they said they retrieved a hunting knife and a machete. Machete? I was at every crime scene. I've never seen a machete. I've never heard about a machete. I didn't see a machete recovered in Watertown or on Wilson Street or, or at the Watertown shootout. Nowhere do you see a machete. There was a machete recovered in the evidence, and you can see it in the photos by Gary Hayward when Morley was arrested 55 days after the marathon. So I think investigators might take a look at that superseding indictment and say, hey, they got a guy who's cooperating, who gives them a rundown of what took place on the night of April 18th, what they took with them to MIT, what they took with them to Watertown, and that guy gets himself jammed up which is the biggest part of the story. Look, we know for a fact that Morley, whether or not you can prove that he robbed the 7-Eleven, but I will point out that Gary Hayward and I have both interviewed multiple people who identify the 7-Eleven robber as Daniel Morley. And Gary Hayward, who is a police captain, has reached out to the agency handling the case and doesn't get a call back because they're not the agency handling the case. (laughs) So two questions come up from that. Are you saying that you think Daniel was with them at MIT? Yes. Okay. I I want to get into that in just a minute. But to that, are you saying also that that machete goes back to the decapitation and sexual mutilation case? No, I'm not saying that at all. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that with that, because there was never weapons recovered from that scene though, right? They never recovered any weapons from that scene. And and it's a good point. I don't think that's it. I don't think Daniel Moley was there. I think this guy is a boob. If When you start to look into every single, if you have a, a mechanism to get all of the pictures of him anywhere on the social media, he's at a lot of scenes where people might want to insert somebody. Anonymous, anarchist organizations. And, you know, people forget that Tamerlan was not just like this budding jihadist. He also had ties to sovereign nations. He had stacks of that, you know, he listened to Alex Jones. He was a nut. So, you know, Daniel Mooley would have been in Tamerlan's orbit with those operations. And the other thing that's worth noting, too, is that same week in 2013 was crazy with Anonymous, the group Anonymous, because you, you, you might remember the case where the Reddit founder, you know, he stole some books. It turned into a case. I mean, those were from the MIT library, right? Yeah, from the MIT library. So he was trying to get kids free downloads of books, which I'm in favor of, whatever. He gets federally indicted. It turns into a brouhaha because his anonymous friends are very upset about this. 
They are so upset that they actually go to the U.S. attorney's house dressed in Guy Fox masks with a cake. Justice for Aaron Schwartz was his name. Aaron Schwartz had committed suicide right around the same time as the Boston Marathon, and people were apoplectic. So MIT was a hotbed of all kinds of chaos that week between Aaron Schwartz's suicide, you know, uh, Sean Collier's murder, and Daniel Morley had this overlap with an audience. He was a member of the Free Staters. I have his Free Staters card, and he was definitely involved with Anonymous. So how close Morley and Tamlin were, who knows? How they overlapped? Well, they shared a class together. You know, they were both affiliates in the Cambridge area of this the same network of Anonymous and Anarchist people. And... What I do know, though, about Morley, and this is, I think, questionable for anybody listening that has a remote understanding of law enforcement, here is a guy who a search of his home revealed signatures to the marathon bombs, which to this day, the FBI has never identified who made the weapons or where. But now you have a room full of signatures to this device, right? Okay. You have a gun that's unsecured. Now, weirdly, he did have a license, but... He had this Russian assault rifle that was unsecured. Massachusetts does not play. But not just any Russian rifle. It was a very special Russian rifle. Yeah, well, you'll have to explain that because I'm not a big guy. Well, I thought that they were saying that it was it, it was harder to... I'm not sure exactly how they said it, but I thought it was harder to get because it went to a certain group of Russian soldiers only used Correct. that rifle. Correct. That's exactly right. So it was... Uh, I can't remember the term of it, but exactly right. It it was more, it wasn't for shooting. It was to gloat. It was kind of like a souvenir of Russian soldiers who definitely were seeking to harm Americans, pretty much. And that's the weapon he had, unsecured, with a ton of bullets, unsecured. Right there, the bullets not locked up, the gun not locked up. It's an automatic one year. Never mind the fact that he beat up his mother and her boyfriend, so that's... Elderly abuse charges right there, assault and battery right there. Do you know he was never arraigned? Gary Haywood wrote up a complaint for possession of a hoax device because not only did they find the signatures to the bomb, they also found a 12-quart pressure cooker hidden in a duffel bag with a bunch of rubber gloves next to a giant bag of fertilizer used to make bombs. So now they have what could be a device. He has all these green circuit boards all over the place. There's a video they recovered on his computer of him making a laser detonator. And if you recall to this day, we've only ever recovered one detonator to the two bombs that were exploded at the Boston Marathon. So there's a lot of unanswered questions about Daniel Morley. The biggest one of all is he didn't serve one minute in jail. He wasn't even arraigned. And somehow he is committed to a mental institution for the two years and is released shortly after Jahar is found guilty. The privately question, privately the funded mental privately hospital. Funded. And David Bloss said he didn't pay for it. The mother didn't pay for it. I never talked to his dad, but his dad also worked at MIT. I don't think he had the money to pay for something like that. So it's unclear who paid for that. And what I will tell you is I went to that facility and I asked him, it is one flew over the cuckoo's nose in there, quite literally. And he comes ambling down the hallway, and he's a giant 
And I said, Danny, did you build the bombs? And he shrugged at me and smirked and said, and turned around and left. He didn't say, if somebody asked you if you built the Boston Marathon bombs that killed a little boy and two young women and maimed hundreds of others, even if you did it, wouldn't you deny it? He didn't even deny it. He just smirked, shrugged, and walked away. Okay, so speaking about that, and I, and then I want to get back to MIT and, and the whole connection there with Sean Collier. The last question about him, though, there was once they go in, they get permission to look around, they get consent, they're going through, they find these this pressure cooker, jump in the car, they head to where the ambulance is, throw it open and say, is that a live bomb? He tells them that it's a live bomb in the house, but it's not. But but it's not a live bomb. It's, it's not a live bomb, but he says it's a live bomb. And in the middle of the, of the bomb squad trying to detonate this device now, they don't know what the hell it is, all of a sudden the FBI shows up. And it goes over the radio to the group. Who called the thieves? Because no one called them. And so it became yet another eye-raising event that the FBI showed up without being summoned to the scene. There was no way for them to have known about the scene unless they had some inside information or somebody gave them a heads up. We still don't know. But it did rattle the bomb squad, the Massachusetts State Police bomb squad, who was working the device, and the Topsfield police commander on the scene, which was Gary Hayward. Nobody called them. They just showed up out of nowhere. Next thing you know, the FBI shows up in Gary Haywood's office and collects all the evidence and takes over the case without a single word of explanation. Okay, so going back to MIT, you think that the, that Daniel was definitely on scene with the brothers. You think I he do. was okay. So the only thing I can think he's there for because you you know call him a boob. The only thing I can think he's there for is to point out where the thermite's at. That's it. Correct. Help them break in and show them exactly where it's well, at so they can get it and go. Well, David Bloss asked me a very interesting question in one of the times that I was speaking with him. He, Danny worked there. He would have seen Sean Collier every single day walk into that building. That was Sean Collier's sector, the building where he worked. And so David Bloss raised a different question, and it's, do you think he rolled down his window to say hi to Danny? And that's how they executed him. Yeah, I mean, I I, definitely, his was down. I mean, it wasn't warm spring night, but his window was down, just his driver's side window, and he shot at point blank rage. The only thing I would say to that is it doesn't really match to me because uh, Jahar is is running the show, I think, in stuff like this. Would you agree? Tamerlan, you mean, the older brother. I, I think in an overall sense, yes, he's running it, telling them where they need to be, but for firing off shots and, and, and getting just shit stirred up. I think it's Jahar. Well, this is what I will say. There was a couple of things that struck me as interesting. Number one, there are video cameras all over that campus everywhere. It's a campus. It's a college campus. The video that the fed showed during Jahar's trial was taken from about three miles away. So you can't make out the figures. Now I know for a fact there was a closer camera because I got stills from a source of them trying to save Sean Collier's life. But for some reason, that video wasn't shown. In court, the prosecutors were very careful, and it's in the book, the, and you can see the testimony. It's definitely at mayhempod.com, the actual testimony. He said the figures walked towards the cruiser, not the brothers, not the bombers. The figures walked towards the cruiser. And even if Jahar didn't fire the fatal shots, he's just as culpable. Now, Obviously, he was insinuating Tamerlan fired the fatal shots. But 
There was also testimony from a cell phone forensics expert from Quantico who talked about the phone calls between Tamerlan and Jahar. These two called each other a minute after Sean Collier's assassination. Now, if you're running away with each other, why are you calling each other on the cell phones? That made no sense. So it just raises, I, I honestly don't know for sure who was standing next to Sean Collier when he was assassinated. But Jahar's, Jahar's fingerprints were on the weapon, correct? When he the tried Jahar to take Sean Collier's weapon, he couldn't get it out of the holster, but it was his fingerprints that were on it, correct? thousand percent. And there was a witness who locked eyes with Jahar and identified Jahar. So Jahar is there. 1,000%. I do think he's the gunman who executed Sean Collier, but was Tamerlan on scene with them? Which has been the belief put forward many, many, many times. That's, I think, in question. So I think, you know, we've gone around it, but I would like to talk about the bombing itself for a minute. We, we've kind of talked all about the people that are surrounded with it, where the bombs possibly came from. There was never really, other than jihad, but it was painted with a very broad brush, why that day, why that moment, and why that location? Can you answer any of those questions? I can't, and I wonder in some ways if Dean and Wally was a part of this in some, in some way, shape, or form. Because we do know that it's been an effective tactic to, to insert an informant, give a budding you know, terrorist the materials, and then swoop in and save the day. They've, they've, we've seen countless examples of this. What the intel was is that Jahar and Tamerlan were going to go to, to the Esplanade on the 4th of July, which would have been much more devastating, frankly, because everyone's laying on the ground. Everyone is at bomb level. You know, it's packed and it's televised internationally, the Boston pops on the Esplanade on July 4th. So if they had any inkling that something was going to happen, I think that the information that people had in counterterrorism circles was that they were going to blow up the Esplanade in July. I don't know the answer to your question. Did they just spontaneously pick the marathon in case there were people around them that were, were talking? I don't know. But there's, there's no concrete answer that came out in trial why they picked that location that day and there's still no information about how these brothers listen I've, i'm from boston copley square is, is mayhem quite literally on boston marathon monday it's packed you have the red sox game the whole city is out you're not driving around the question that still bothers me to this day is these brothers made their way from the carnage they just inflicted on the city of Boston to Whole Foods in Cambridge where Jahar was buying a gallon of milk for, for Tamerlan's wife. And I still don't understand how we don't know how they got there. Okay, but that's my question too. And I, 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 you, you point that out a lot in the book. But we know for sure they were at Ground Zero. We know for sure. It was on video. Yeah, we have video of it. Right. So does that put a third person waiting somewhere in a car? But do you think that that Daniel guy can pull something like that off? By your own account, he's a dum-dum. He's a dum-dum with a very high IQ. So he's one of those, like, savants, almost. Okay. He, has a, he has an off-the-charts high IQ. Um, Gary Hayward, uh, remember the days when you used the old-school Garmin's and you had to actually program <laughs> it in and plug it in? 
So he downloaded all of the addresses in Daniel's Garmin. And, you know, Daniel, one of the last addresses he entered was one very close to Copley Square. Okay. So I'm not saying it was Daniel that pulled him up. I don't know. I know that they have that address. I also know that I have photos of Daniel Morley that he posted himself firing weapons at the firing line in Manchester, New Hampshire, which is the exact same place that Tamerlan practiced using that Ruger P95 that was used to kill Sean Collier. So can I put these people together definitively, Daniel Morley and Tamerlan? No. But circumstantially, I think that there are a lot of tentacles that you as a law enforcement official would probably chase around. Okay, so let me ask you. Let's let's say Daniel was the one that meets him. You're from Boston. You still say that it's chaos, that it's going to take... I, I think oh, you even talk about where you have to park 20 blocks away to get to where they're at. With that, how do they get out? I'm asking you as from being I, from Boston... If if you were to give a reason or give a way how they got out, how would they have done it? So the only way to do it, and believe me, I've walked it and mapped it myself in my head. So there's the Mass Ave Bridge that goes directly from, um, not Boylston Street, Mass Ave. So, if you, so the last image we have is Jahar rounding the corner onto Harbor Street from Boylston Street, which leads him to Calm Ave, where Tom Brady used to live. From there, if you take a left and hit Mass Ave, you, you come to the Mass Ave Bridge, which leads directly into Cambridge. So traffic is redirected from the Mass Ave Bridge down, but you can still get over the Mass Ave Bridge. So if you have somebody who's waiting in the wings in that area, you can take a left and hightail it to Cambridge pretty quickly. And that's what I'm thinking because I'm thinking it's going to take at least with with everything that's going on because it was, like you said, mass chaos with two different bombs going off, trying to see if there was other. I think you got about a 15-minute window where there's not going to be traffic control. Everyone is going to be coming towards. No one's going to be going away because they're either stuck there and sheltering in place. But if you're on the outside... I think you got about a 15 minute window to get out before traffic gets jammed. And I think that's exactly what they utilize to get to Whole Foods in Cambridge. But that means that means somebody had to be in the perfect position to accomplish that, which takes planning. And you're right. Everybody dropped what they were doing. So the traffic cops who were trying to keep people from going down Mass Ave and onto Boylston Street, they're gone. They're running towards the blast. So if you have somebody positioned on one of the side streets off Commonwealth Avenue, it's not, it's not a jump to go on Starro Drive or to go over the Mass Ave Bridge. Here's the only problem with that in my head, and, and I wanted to talk to you about this. During an event like that, someone just waiting and waiting and waiting until this happens is going to look suspicious. Except for if they had this, pres- I mean, obviously they timed it. Right. So because they went there and they detonated 13 seconds apart, they were on the phone with one another as they walked down. Tamerlan stopped in front of Marathon Sports, calls his brother. Boom. Jahar calls his brother. Boom. They run away. But if you in, in one of the things that's worth noting is it was later in the day. This wasn't at the height of the finish line. This is when the Boston people are just hanging around and partying. 
these are the stragglers. This isn't the elite raced teams. The media has kind of pulled out, you know, there's still a few people there getting the last runners, but this is the, this is the last of the runners coming over the finish line at the time that they detonated these blasts. So the crowd is thinned out. If you, if you walk a few blocks, you know, uh, east of the marathon, which I'm sure someone's going to call me out and say it's West, but if you walk a few blocks away from Boylston Street, there are a bunch of side streets. It would be easy to just kind of linger around on. Okay. So they go there. Here's the next question. So they go to get the milk and everything. They're on camera there, which of course is giving them their alibi. Hey, I was over here getting milk and I was in some place completely separate. And they did it so quickly that that would be a good alibi. Here's where it gets confusing to me about the family, though. And, and in your book, you pointed out with Tamerlan's wife, she is questioned, but not really questioned ever. <laughs> I, I mean, but you run across this where they say, well, I had no idea. I, I think you would have some kind of idea that your husband or your significant other was getting ready to blow up something. Well, I know that that's not true because... During the course of my investigation, there was um, a point where I almost went to jail because I wouldn't give up a source. And the source, and of course, the judge in the case, um, it was uh, one of the peripheral characters tied to the bombers who helped them dispose of evidence. And I got that report about Kairulazan Matinov and the Black Flag of Jihad. And Kairulazan Matinov took the brothers that out for dinner that night to celebrate. And the 302 that I got, the FBI proffer, was Kairulazan describing what happened in the house in the hours after the Boston Marathon attacks. So here's the Kairulazan Matinov timeline. Jahar is in the store getting the milk. Tamerlan is on the phone with Kairulazan Matinov in Jahar's green Honda. So whoever drove them there, they're gone because we have video of them in the parking lot and it's just Tamerlan in the car. We know from phone records that he's on the phone with Kairulazan Matinov. Hey man, did you hear what happened? Same sort of collateral damage nonsense, allegedly, from Kairulazan Matinov. They made plans for dinner. Matinov tells police, the FBI, that when he shows up, they're all watching TV. Jahar's there stroking a cat, which is weird because you would later, be that detailed. And he was be, allergic to cats. That's right. You remember that. So he told when the ambulance driver, when he got pulled off the boat and he shot up and people, it was all they could do not to just beat him to death, I'm sure. But they put him in the back of an ambulance and the paramedic says, uh, are you allergic to anything cats? So of course my mind flies to this report I have where he is stroking a cat, according to Karabulazar Matnov. They're watching footage of what they just did. Karabulazar says that they don't take claim to the marathon. I doubt that. But then they, Catherine Russell is there as they're all laughing at the footage and discussing what took place and celebrating the death of that little boy and the two young women. So she knows enough to be brought in for questioning at the very least. Yet somehow she never was. Even stranger, she was never called to testify about the activities of her husband and her brother-in-law in the immediate aftermath of that attack. And I'm sure everyone has seen enough evidence photos to see their house was festooned with black flags of jihad. So this lady knew something, especially as she's Googling rewards for the wife of a Mujahideen. And somehow she's never, 
ever been questioned. And I'm told from my sources in the FBI that they really wanted to lock her up, but someone in the Justice Department in Maine Justice stopped them from doing it. Okay, so with that and with him taking them to a quote-unquote celebratory dinner, uh, let's move after all this is over because I want to move to kind of the shootouts, how this kind of came to an end because it came to an end in two separate incidences. It came to an end in two separate ways. It was very strange. So there's this wild bomb and bullet battle. And there was talk that there were two guns. There was, uh, you know, a Chechen guy with a hoodie who ran off in the middle of the wild firefight. There was a naked guy who gets arrested in the middle of all of this mayhem. Right? Like it was, it was just like there was nonstop activity. Well, that brings us to 89 Dexter Avenue. So there's a report somewhere that I never got my hands on, but I know it exists. That done. So you remember the, the events of the night. Sean Collier, the FBI releases the photos of the suspect, black hat, suspect, white hat. 5.30 p.m. 10.20 p.m. The 7-Eleven is robbed by this redacted perp. And an accomplice that looked a lot like Jahar. 15 minutes later, Sean Collier is assassinated. Not long after that, a young businessman is carjacked. Someone comes up behind them, Dunmeng. They tap the gun on the window, roll your window down. Tamalin drives in the driver's seat. Jahar follows them around in the Honda. They, they pull up to Dexter Avenue. They leave the car. They, they're, you know, the green Honda that belonged to Jahar, the one that was used at the Whole Foods. They leave that in Watertown. Jahar jumps in the backseat. They continue this driving around with Dunmeng. They steal money from his ATM. And he finally escapes in Cambridge on Memorial Drive at a gas station. Now, do you know who lived on Memorial Drive where that gas station is? The Eritreans. They lived in that building on Memorial Drive where Dunmeng got out of the car. Now, is that a coincidence? I don't know, but it seems a little odd that they grab the guy in, in Cambridge, drive him all over Watertown, and then come back to Cambridge where he jumps out of the car to get gas. So there's a million gas stations between Watertown and Cambridge. But they end up there, he jumps out, He the cops are called, They um, he left his iPhone in the car, they use find my phone and they ping him. They ping the missing Mercedes to Watertown. You've heard the story about Sergeant Joe Reynolds who's a fantastic human being and a great guy and very like a spiritual dude, you know, like, like an unlikely, hard guy, right? He's just a very nice, pleasant person. But this unlikely hard guy locks eyes with Tamron Zanayev. Next thing you know, he's taking rounds through the windshield, shatters his windshield. He finally has to retreat by putting the car into drive and just letting it roll and him taking cover behind his driver's side door. Rounds are fired everywhere. Other people arrive on the scene. It's a full-on firefight. At some point, they start lighting pipe bombs and tossing them at the cops. And then there's an eight-quart pressure cooker bomb that explodes. And it's crazy because the next day I was there and there's pieces of the bomb and like literally embedded in the entire Toyota. Like it went through the door and into the seat. You know, like it was that powerful and everything explosive. And I've had Jeffrey Puglisi. He was on my podcast. He's definitely there on Mayhem Pod. He tells a story about how he skip-shotted, like Tamerlan fired directly at him. He was definitely clearly trained, you know, because he fired like a soldier, walked right into the line of fire, 
gun extended, the gun jams. At that point, Puglisi uses an opportunity to skip shot because he's a some sort of great shot, apparently. And it hits Tamerlan, so he's, he's down. Tamerlan gets so mad, he immediately gets up and throws the empty gun at Puglisi. They tackle him. They have him in their grips. Like, literally, Puglisi has his belt loop in his hand. And the guy's a monster. He's huge. And he's still thrashing and fighting. And, all, and Reynolds is pistol whipping him, and he won't go down. He won't go down. And they're wrestling with him to try to get handcuffs on. He's bloody. It's slippery. They can't cuff him. Suddenly, they hear the rev of an engine, and they hear one of the other cops yell, you watch out, because Jahar jumps back behind the wheel of the stolen Dunmen car and gun the engine towards the cops. They drop Tamalin. Jahar runs over his brother and drags him 20 feet and gets away. Now, during this firefight, they're shooting at the, at the fleeing car. A bullet ricochets and hits an MBT police officer named Dick Donahue. I hate the term friendly fire. I think friendly fire is if you're an idiot and you're cleaning your gun and you hit your friend. I think it's a different term when you're in a wild firefight and a bullet ricochets. But nonetheless, it was a fellow cop's bullet that almost killed Dick Donahue. It's a crazy story about how his friends jumped in and saved his life and drove, you know, they hijacked an ambulance to get him to the hospital and they didn't know how to drive it. So it was, the emergency brake was on the whole time. So I just interviewed a cop last week who talked about how when he got to the hospital, all he spilled was burnt rubber because they <laughs> because they had driven the ambulance so far with the brake on. And, you know, it, it took, he would have died if people didn't step up with all the blood. It was a constant flow of blood. They couldn't get it to clot. So all the blood they were pumping into him was just coming out. And so they had to get platelets. And there's like a crazy story about how they got the platelets all the way from like, the ass end of nowhere in Massachusetts to the hospital where Dick Donahue was bleeding out and they saved his life. Meanwhile, as Dick Donahue was fighting for his life, Jahar gets away, which is crazy to me because I'm getting a text message. I'm on scene. I'm hearing the bullet, you know, everybody's on scene. And I got a text saying, we have a blood trail. We have a dog. We're going to get him. And the next thing I get is a text saying, the FBI cleared the scene. They pulled the dog. And the cop was furious. It's like we had him. And we now know from evidence photos that there was, a, he left, staggered away, leaving bloody handprints, pretty much like a breadcrumb trail to his hiding spot. And, um, and this didn't make it into the book, but it is in the podcast. You know, I interviewed one of the SWAT team leaders from Nemlek, who was on scene. He was a sergeant in um, the wealthy and police department where those, those kids were killed. And he gave me a copy of the map that the FBI had distributed to all of the different SWAT teams. Nemlek gets this, this gets this. So it's a grid search of every block in Watertown, except for one where the boat was. So needless to say, the SWAT teams are talking about how they feel like they were misdirected. I can't say if they were or they weren't, but I can tell you I see the map and I see every grid highlighted and assigned to a different SWAT team. And the one area on this map was where David Henenberry's boat was dry docked. And that just happened to be where Tamerlan left a bloody trail, rolled down a hill and climbed up into this boat and pulled the top over his head. Bleeding, shot, wounded. And we know what happened next. Again, this floppy haired teen wrote a missive to America in a number two pencil, including the lines, 
know that you are looking, you are dealing with men who look down the barrel of your gun and see heaven. And there was all kinds of jihadist rhetoric that he wrote on the side of the boat. He literally took a knife and scrawled another message into the side of the boat and used the fire extinguisher, CO2, to highlight what he had written to make sure that people read it. This is what he was up to. I was just bleeding in this boat. And think about how much time it took for him to accomplish this missive. My brother is lucky. He's with the virgins. You know, uh, you stop killing our innocent people, we'll stop killing yours. That, that was the message he took the time to write on the side of the boat. And think about that day. The whole city is shut down. The whole state is shut down, practically. The whole city is shut down. We're in it. We're, what the pre cursor to COVID with the, um, you know, lockdowns, right? So we had a shelter in place order. So no one could leave the house. They weren't allowed to leave their house. We have Black Hawk helicopters, beer cats, tanks, soldiers, SWAT teams. No one finds Jahar. This guy comes out for a butt and notices that the tarp is flapping on his dry dock boat. And that's who found Jahar Zanayev. Well, when you talk about his final moments in the boat, not final moments before he died, final moments before he's captured, and he writes out this thing, it's pretty much what he did in court, too, when it was all over. And this goes back to the whole thing that I was saying about it wasn't about jihad with him, I don't think. It was it was about uh, almost notoriety. He reminded me very much of Richard Ramirez when he went on trial for the Night Stalker uh, murders. Very play to the crowd, to the girls, uh, in in a different way. But that's what it seemed like to me. That's why he flipped off the cameras. He knew they would record that. There was all these things. And then when he gets to the end and he apologizes or his, his sort of apology or whatever you want to call it, where he says that he's learned about the families and stuff, that is pure manipulation of the courtroom. Oh, it's just, you hit it on the head. He, look at, this is a kid who literally had a fan club. There were girls that showed up at court with Jahari. They called themselves the Jaharians. That was the fan group. And the Jaharians still send him money to his to his canteen coffers to this day. Some of these girls had tattoos of his face on their bodies. They wore T-shirts that said, Free Jahar. Uh, honestly, the, the U.S. Marshals got verified threats against various members of media, including me. And they were usually from the girls that were coming to court who supported Jahar. Like these women were straight up out of his, but he was absolutely, you are hundred percent right. He's like the preppy killer. He's like all these other nitwits who just want some sort of fame and glory. Remember to this day, Jahar is still an unrepentant little shit. You know, one of these court officers who was in federal court when he was uh, finally convicted, he talked about how they all went back to a back room. Now, remember, these are defense attorneys who never lost a case. Judy Clark never lost a defense uh, death penalty case ever. She saved the shoe bomber. She saved uh, the Unabomber. She saved uh, Mohammed Atta from the death penalty, I think. Let me take back Mohammed Atta. But certainly one of the 9-11 terrorists. We have to look up. Let me take that one back. But I know for a fact that this woman had never lost a case until this one. They all go back. 
And Judy was like rubbing his back and trying to make him look like a young, he just couldn't even go with the flow with that. Like they were trying to save his life and he couldn't go with it. When they all got in the back room, everybody is wailing, my witness said, crying except for Jahar. He was just like, just sitting there nonplussed and kind of annoyed that his legal team was weeping all around him. And he continues that attitude in court. You don't know how much time I've spent reading about how he's trying to sue us, the American taxpayer who's literally funded his entire existence since he arrived in the US, his house, his food, his everything. He's never worked except for dealing weed. And he had a free ride to college and a free everything. And he continues to sue us because his civil rights that he wouldn't have if he didn't take that oath of citizenship on September 11th, 2012, but his civil rights are being violated because they won't let him wear a white baseball cap like the one he wore when he dropped a bomb behind Martin Richard and his family. And his civil rights are being violated because he can't mail his hobby crafts to his lawyers, which raises the immediate ethical oh, question, oh. what are his lawyers doing with those hobby crafts? Murder memorabilia. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, to sell them. To sell them. So at the end of the trial, he he is um, convicted. He gets the death penalty. They move him to the Supermax. The, the thing that I wanted to talk about about him, though, was all the people that they brought up, and it's kind of the last part of this case because it, it, it really stuck kind of in my crawl. All these people that got up to speak for him. So all these people get up there and talk, and he even says at the end, this is the crazy thing to me. If you're confused if I did it, or if you don't think I'm guilty or whatever, I want to take all that confusion away. I definitely did this. I am guilty of this. Yet you still had people trying to say that he shouldn't go to prison, that he shouldn't be punished for it, and it's self-admittance from him in the court that he did it. He said, if you're confused if I did it, I did it. I mean, Judy Clark started her opening statement with, he did it. That was the beginning of her statement. He said he did it. Everyone said he did it. And he still had these weepy teachers and his friends and the old girlfriend. He's the nicest boy I ever met. And the Jaharians outside rallying for his release. It's, it's just mind boggling to me that you can take somebody who's capable of murdering a child and laughing at the images of women dying, gasping the last breaths. And you, and his response to that is to flip us the bird and swagger into court and blow kisses to his family. The fact that anybody could see him as a sympathetic creature, even the language, I urge anyone, I mean, I, look, I'm a big proponent of Pacer being free, but you can go into his court record and look at the handwritten missives he is now boring a federal judge with, because now he spends all his time suing us. And here is a guy who got a COVID relief check. I didn't get a COVID relief check, but Jahar Zanayev got a COVID relief check. He has money from his defense team that still is not explained, plus the money he got from the Jaharians. Finally, the former Massachusetts US attorney, the one who just left, Andrew Lelling, he had enough. He's like, you know what? This kid owes us, and the number is staggering. It's like half a billion dollars in restitution as part of his sentence. We want everything in his account, everything. We want everything. 
to the point where we don't even want him to have enough money to call his parents in Russia, which is now free because of COVID. So he doesn't even have to pay for that. But who's paying because he's on appeal right now and it still hasn't been found out who's paying for the defense, right? We're paying for the defense. Look, if you have a mirror, that's who's paying for the defense. <laughs> and this is, this is what is so disgusting. The cost of his first trial is so expensive. Now, remember, he, there's the, there is the sentencing phase and the penalty phase. Two mm-hmm. trials. The cost is so high, it's under seal. His ongoing appeal, which has been happening and it will happen forever, is under seal. These are lawyers that fly from New York to Colorado as often as they want to, to listen to the gripes and complaints of this convicted terrorist. We pay for it. It's so staggering, the costs, that they sealed it. And it's in, I'm telling you, it's in the tens of millions. So the people who say, wow, I'm really shocked that the Justice Department even gave him the death penalty. I'm not, because all of their friends are the defense attorneys who have a blank check to defend this guy for the rest of his life. Well, it, it was a, a fantastic book right here. Mayhem. You can see all the marks cause there's so much stuff in it uh, that, that you have to highlight because there's so many little technicalities to this case. Let's talk about, uh, of course, we're going to put a link on your episode page on the website, dtdpodcast.net. It'll have the link so you, you can pick up this book. You can also pick up Maximum Harm. Let's talk about your next one, though, because that one is really big, and that's how we'll kind of wrap up the conversation. So I, there was a look at as much as I'm somebody who looks at every big picture, right? As much as the FBI, I think, had, whether it was incompetence, whether it was intentional I don't know. The FBI had a role to play in what happened in Boston on Patriot's Day. That same FBI field office did a phenomenal job in my neighborhood of East Boston. I was somebody who dug into my hometown neighborhood when no one wanted to live there because bodies were piling up at the hands of MS-13, which is a very complicated and nuanced gang. It's not just the group of savages you hear about. As you know, because it's very prolific in Texas, MS-13, a lot of the kids who become these insane savage killers are forced into the gang. They're coerced, you know, their their mother gets kidnapped and is threatened with rape if the kid doesn't join in Texas or Massachusetts or wherever. So the FBI in Boston was desperate to stop the bodies from falling literally directly behind my house in the park. And all of these there were six children from East Boston High School killed by their classmates. Not even a national story. I mean, imagine that. Six kids from one class in East Boston High School killed by their fellow classmates and not a blip. So the the North Shore Gang Task Force, which is a great crew of cops, they inserted an undercover who got... They, it's a very long and complicated tale, but the guy essentially was a drug trafficker who did time testified against the notorious Zetas cartel, got booted back to El Sal. He knows they're going to come for him. He's willing to do anything to get out of El Sal, and he agrees to sign up and wear a wire in this case. What the cops didn't expect is that he got jumped in as a full-fledged member. And now they have this jumped-in homeboy who's the official gypsy cab driver for the gang, and the gang doesn't know that the gypsy cab is outfitted with cameras and microphones and they 
effectively pull off after a two-year, very dangerous, very exciting sting, the biggest takedown of MS-13 in our country's history. A case that has still led to people getting locked up in Texas, led to people getting locked up in El Sal. It's a massive case. It was a great job. So it's a, it's a, it's a good rah-rah. The police, you know, doing their job and helping out a very vulnerable and underrepresented community in East Boston. And uh, Operation Mean Streets is the name of it, correct? That's it, yep. And then it's also, though, I think it's you kind of glossed over it, but it's going to be an HBO scripted series. We hope. Everything is kind of like stagnant in the town right now, as they say, because I'm living here in L.A. trying to get these projects off the ground. But we are talking to some documentary filmmakers. We're talking to HBO about a scripted series. I mean, it's it's a fantastic story. And I think that, you know, it dives into... Kids, they have a poverty of choice in a lot of ways. Whether they want to be in the gang or not, you know, you start to, you do have sympathy, which I never expected to come away with, but you do have sympathy for some of these kids, even the ones that are murderers because of the circumstances that force them to be in the position they're in. Well, I I think it would be great. And HBO has put out some pretty good ones uh, lately in a scripted series. You're no stranger to that city on the hill. Uh, you did part of that and that was great. So where can people, if they want to go find more about you, where they can pick up the books, all that kind of stuff, let them know where they can find you. Well, I'm on Twitter at Michelle with one L M C P A G E. My mother likes to say that she wasn't a bad speller, that there's just no hell in Michelle. So it's Michelle with one L. Um, I'm michellemcfee.com, which is in desperate need of an update, but you can find me out there. And I, I'm just so, I just really want to say thank you for having me. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, my friends speak so highly of you and you have such a great background and I've loved listening to the podcast. So I'm happy to be part of it. Thank you so much. So guys, uh, let's run down real quick. Of course, it'll be on the episode page for you. michellemcfee.com mayhem.com. Correct. Is where uh, mayhem pod. Mayhempod.com is where they can find, see pictures of the evidence, all that different kind of stuff. It's very cool. You can also pick up the podcast anywhere that you want to listen to it. Now you go further with that podcast and you have now started incorporating people into it, not just telling the story of the Boston bombing, very interesting podcast. So I think that people should get out there and see that you can pick that up on Apple, Spotify, everywhere that podcasts are. Guys, uh, I think that's going to be the show for tonight. This has been a pretty amazing story, and I'm telling you, you got to get this book and pay attention to all the little small nuances that no one really knew about that wasn't at kind of the the birthplace of this thing. And uh, just to hear all the information that wasn't out major on new sites and things like that. If you guys want some more of me, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these are in video form. And you can also check us out at dtdpodcast.net. That is the one-stop shop for all of those places. It has all the social links. It has the audio and video versions of this. And for each guest that we have on, it has their own page. So you'll get to see pictures from their career, pictures from their books, and get to see a little more in-depth about the person. Guys, don't forget, you want to go check out Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. That's our sponsor. Keep in mind, they're an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends and as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. 
each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant. And their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee is some of the best you'll find, but it also helps serve an important cause. Remember, they give back to our community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. When you go on their site at policecoffee.com, put in DJK10, you get 10% off your order. Also, don't forget to check out our buddies over there. They're not a sponsor, but it's a good friend of mine and a veteran-owned business, Mac Belts. They're built to be the toughest on earth. They're founded by a former Navy SEAL and handcrafted right here in the USA. Mac Belts feature unbreakable construction, and they're back with a lifetime guarantee. Gear up today with a veteran-owned business, changing the way belts are made. That's at MacBelt.com. I wear them every day, and they're fantastic. You can get them with any logo that you want on them, and all of it is crafted here in the United States. Guys, that's going to be the show. Like I said, that's Michelle. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys definitely on the next one. We're out of here. Bye.